The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. A historic day here in the United States in the fight against COVID-19. As mass distribution of a vaccine gets underway, we have complete team coverage around the country. Amid that progress against the outbreak, Stocks looking to bounce back after snapping their recent multi-week winning streak. In Washington, D.C., the federal government revealing a data breach of several agencies, including the Treasury Department. We'll have the latest on who may be behind the hack. And then overseas, negotiators working on a Brexit deal to get another deadline extension as the U.K. and E.U. remain divided on very key components and New York City restaurants already struggling to survive, facing yet another hurdle as a new indoor dining ban takes hold. It is Monday, December 14th, 2020. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. Here is how your money and the global markets are setting their day up. Futures right now pointing to some pretty decent gains. You can see the Dow Jones implied higher by nearly 200 points. The S&P by just around 20 and the Nasdaq up by about 42. A key eye on the Nasdaq. It has been an outperformer as of late, as has been the case in 2020. This after stock snapped their multi-week winning streak on Friday. All three major indices finishing their week lower with the S&P 500 closing down nearly 1%, as you can see here. It's shaping up to be another big week for investors this week. In addition to today's Pfizer vaccine rollout, the Federal Reserve will also kick off its final two-day policy meeting of 2020 tomorrow. On Wednesday, we get November retail sales figures and an early look at the holiday shopping season there. Let's now go worldwide as the deadline for Brexit talks gets extended and Germany rolls out very tough new COVID measures and restrictions. Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with more. Good morning, Juliana. Dom, good morning. Well, this morning, European markets are marching higher alongside those U.S. futures. This comes after a lackluster week for European stocks last week. The main benchmark dropped about 1%, breaking a five-week winning streak. This morning, though, the main benchmark is up about 0.8%. Breaking it down across the different markets, we are seeing green across the board, and we are continuing to very closely watch those Brexit talks. If we can give you a look at the different regions and what we've got uh, here we've got red red in just the Swiss market uh, trading just below the flat line, but the UK market up about 0.3 percent. The German market up about one percent. So fairly strong gains from a sector perspective. The banks are outperforming this morning relative to the broader market. Hopefully, we can get you a check on sectors. Uh, but we are seeing outperformance in the banking sector alongside autos, insurance, and travel and leisure. So a bias toward those cyclical stocks. Brexit negotiations continue. We 
We extended those talks after the Sunday self-imposed deadline yesterday, yet to see a breakthrough, breakthrough on that front. And lastly, a check on German markets. Germany will go back into lockdown starting on Wednesday, a hard lockdown until at least January 10th. The German market showing some resilience, though, as, as those at-home stocks catch a bid this morning. Dom, back to you. All right, Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London. Thank you very much for that. Now to some of our other top stories that we are following. And the biggest one is the rollout of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine here in the United States. Workers at Pfizer's factory in Michigan began packing the first shipments of that vaccine yesterday. Trucks were escorted from the facility by security officers. The shots were loaded up onto UPS and FedEx planes to be distributed across the country. The vaccine is being sent to more than 630 locations nationwide with 145 to get them today and another 425 tomorrow and a further 66 on Wednesday. Hospitals are preparing to administer the first shots as soon as today. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla will have more on this when he joins Squawk Box at 8 a.m. Eastern Time, a must-watch interview later on today. 8 a.m. Eastern. Meanwhile, Novartis says a phase three study of its Rux COVID drug did not meet the primary end goal of reducing the number of hospitalized COVID-19 patients with complications. The data shows the treatment on top of standard care did not reduce severe complications, including respiratory failure that requires a ventilator or admission into an intensive care unit. And then AstraZeneca is buying Alexion Pharmaceuticals for $39 billion in a mix of cash and stock, its largest deal ever. The transaction values Alexion at $175 a share. That's a 40% premium over its average price in the last month. The move would boost Astra's footprint in treating rare diseases. You can see Alexion shares up 35% in the pre-market trade. AstraZeneca down roughly 5%. Back to the overall markets, the major averages ending lower and snapping a multi-week winning streak in the first full week of December. While investors are growing more optimistic about vaccines, several worries still remain, including stimulus talks in D.C., Brexit negotiations and concerns. Stocks continue to make new highs even as COVID infections rise worldwide. For more now, we are joined on the CNBC Newsline by Candace Bangsund, Portfolio Manager on the Global Asset Allocation Team at Fiera Capital. Good morning, Candice. Is it a worrisome fact for you that we are so near record highs despite the fact there are all of these unknowns still in play? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it goes without saying that there are a lot of near-term risks and uh, headlines that are worrisome, whether it's the Brexit uh, deliberations, delays on the fiscal front in the U.S., and of course, most importantly, the latest worrisome virus trends um, across uh, the U.S. Uh, and Europe, and of course, the uh, potential for some near-term economic impacts. But our sense is that given these vaccine breakthroughs, investors will be able to look through some of these um, near-term headline risks towards um, a more lucrative 2021 will be able to look through it seems candace that they've already looked through it they're, they're already putting it up there saying that this is going to be great in 2021 and perhaps even beyond how much exactly how much optimism is already in the marketplace given the fact that we know vaccines are rolling out today absolutely so the mood in the market is definitely 
uh, leaning bullish and a lot of optimism given these recent developments. Uh, the stars are aligning for a fantastic 2021. And I think what markets are underestimating is the magnitude of that recovery in the latter part of next year. Um, you know, we know about the vaccine, but this is going to spark a very swift return to normalcy, particularly given that uh, pent-up demand, elevated savings, and of course the lagged impact from all of that monetary and fiscal support, helping to accentuate the revival in uh, the latter part of next year. And this is, I think, what hasn't yet been reflected in prices, particularly in those sectors of the market that are tied to the fortunes of the global economy. So, so it's, it's, it's interesting you bring that up, Candice. Many of the guests that we've spoken to over the last several weeks have talked about this kind of move for the markets and investors into non-technology-oriented cyclical mm-hmm. sectors. Another fancy way of saying, let's go for all the economically sensitive stuff that's just not technology. What exactly does that mean, and where are the overweights in your mind? Absolutely. Well, so while this year has been the year of the pandemic uncertainty, this has underscored that defensive nature of the rally that we've seen since March. And that has largely been driven by the tech sector. 2021, of course, in our view, is going to be a year of the reopening and the recovery. Um, And this is where we want to be exposed to those sectors of the market that are tied to the economy. So resources, industrials, financials, these sectors have lagged in the equity market rally since those March lows. And this is where we see some compelling value in the next 12 months. All right. Candace Bangson of Fiera, thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. All right. When we come back on the show, much more on today's historic vaccine rollout. We talked to the head of one transportation company working to get that treatment out to everybody. Plus, congressional leaders taking a new approach to getting much-needed stimulus to Americans, the latest on whether a deal can actually get done. And later on, we lay out whether the headaches for commercial real estate will carry over into 2021. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Rollout of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine has begun, with FedEx and UPS trucks leaving the company's plant in Kalamazoo, Michigan, yesterday, as you're seeing there. The transport is especially challenging given the treatment's refrigeration requirements. One company experienced in the complicated logistics of vaccine transport is Boyle Transportation, which is working with UPS to get that vaccine out to everybody in America. For more now, we are joined by Andrew Boyle, the co-president of Boyle Transportation. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Let's talk about we just saw the trucks going out there. What's going to be the hardest part about your job in the coming weeks? Well, good morning, John. Thank you for having me. Uh, You know, what's interesting is what what we did yesterday is what we do every day. So that's that's our business is transporting vaccines and pharmaceuticals. So uh, what was unusual about yesterday is the extraordinary media attention and then just the historic nature of that product launch. 
So um, the, the challenges are uh, largely at, at other levels of the logistics networks, but uh, you know, we're proud just to be a humble trucker serving our, our role within that larger scheme. So, I mean, as we talk about the, the, the notion that we are trying to, to undertake the, the biggest vaccination effort that we've seen in generations here in the U.S., you're, you're part of that logistics infrastructure. What exactly does it mean then for you as a trucking company specializing in this kind of stuff to be able to kind of deliver these products out to market? How important is it for you and your company to be able to participate in a huge endeavor like this? It, it, the, the sense of pride that all of our teammates felt yesterday was absolutely extraordinary. And, you know, what was, has been absolutely heroic up to this point is the efforts of the drug developers, the clinical trial participants, the regulators. But now we're at a point where much of the execution relies on some of the people we saw yesterday in reflective vests, on the loading docks, the professional truck drivers, the air cargo handlers, the package sorters, the pilots, and ultimately the, the men and women we all love in brown uh, uniforms delivering those packages. So blue-collar America and logistics professionals are going to play such a vital role in this execution, and they're very proud and they're ready. Now, Andrew, a, a lot has been made uh, of just how difficult it is logistically and, and from a kind of refrigeration standpoint to kind of get this vaccine out to everybody what exactly then is going to be the difficulty for you? How hard are the refrigeration requirements and the shelf life issues going to be for us to get a good vaccine out to everybody that's effective for everybody down the line? Right. So co- that's what we do is secure validated cold chain logistics. And uh, there are there's an infrastructure and a network set up globally to transport medicine. And we serve one segment of that. Now, clearly, the difference with that product yesterday is that the, the, the temperatures are extraordinarily low. So often what you see is no truck, for example, can get to minus 70 or 80 C. That, that's liquid nitrogen. That, that doesn't happen. So uh, pharmaceuticals are typically shipped in either passive or active containers. So uh, yesterday, you know, passive containers would include like gel packs or uh, dry ice. Of course, in this case, the dry ice has to be replenished frequently. Or sometimes they're shipped in like igloos, so active containers that have HVAC systems in there with an AC or DC power, uh, like a like a C safe or some of these other companies make those types of products. So you're trying to reduce the delta between what's in that container and it's uh, and then the shipping uh, container, like the trailer in our case, or uh, the belly of an aircraft. So you're trying to reduce that delta as much as possible to prolong and elongate the uh, the duration of the the dry ice or the gel packs. All right. And we just got a couple seconds left here. What's the thing that worries you most about this vaccine rollout, Andrew? Well, in, in the motor transportation uh, segment, you know, it's quite a tight capacity. It's the tightest capacity environment we've experienced in my career. And at the same time, we have a spike of demand. So we're doing our part. We're going to uh, be as efficient as possible, try to create as much capacity as possible with weekend shipping, et cetera. But, uh, you know, we're, we're prioritizing this type of cargo. If people uh, receive their Christmas, uh, holiday gifts a little bit late, I think they're willing to do so in light of the challenge that we're facing. All right. Andrew Boyle, Boyle Transportation, thank you very much. He's also, by the way, the vice chairman of the American Trucking Association. We appreciate your thoughts. Thank you very much and good luck, sir. Thank you for having me. 
All right, still on deck for the show, we talked to one New York City restaurateur about the challenges they're facing in new indoor dining bans and what those challenges will create for him and others fighting to keep their doors open in New York City. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Indoor dining at restaurants across New York City will be banned starting today amid rising COVID cases across the region. The move by Governor Andrew Cuomo deals a major blow to the city's hospitality industry, already struggling and gearing up for what's expected to be a very brutal winter. For more now, I am joined by Jordan Andino, co-owner and executive chef of Flip Siggy. We've, we've, we've spoken to you before. Thank you so much for joining us again, Jordan. Back then, we talked about the difficulties of closing and the restaurant industry. Has it gotten better or worse since your last appearance here on our network? Uh, you know, since my last appearance, I've actually uh, closed one restaurant and opened the other. Uh, one landlord was forced us to, you know, wouldn't work with us, while another one was a fan and gave us some COVID-friendly stipulations and a new lease. And, you know, it's been, it's been difficult. Uh, the cold weather has not been kind to, um, you know, eliminating a lot of our seats. And now with indoor dining closing, we're eliminating even more. So fortunately, we have a good setup uh, of, an in, like of an outdoor area, but it's not looking good, especially with colder weather and snow coming into the forecast. So, so, so how exactly is that going to play out? I, I mean, we know in certain parts of the country, say in the Midwest and, and the Northeast, that cold weather is going to be a factor. We've known it for months now. Is there anything that can be done by restaurateurs given the cold weather and what's being imposed in terms of indoor dining restrictions? You know, uh, it's, it's going to be tough because there's only so much, um, you know, foot space or a footprint that we can uh, extend our restaurants out to the New York sidewalks. Um, de Blasio, um, Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo have done their best to give us some sort of bike lanes and parking spots, which have, which have without a doubt helped. However, you know, it's just up to the restaurateurs like we, like me and my restaurant at Flip City, we've opened up new dining periods, we've introduced new menu items, we've increased contactless ordering. We've done everything we can in order to just up our revenue streams at times when in the past we weren't even open. So now we, we open for breakfast, for example, from 7.30 to 11 when in, when in the past five years we never did that. So you just got to be innovative and willing to adapt to all these different circumstances and change as we move forward through the pandemic. 
Jordan, this past week, we saw the one of the most high profile IPOs arguably in U.S. market history, and that was for DoorDash. A massive move. Uh, 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 You know, ostensibly, we're talking about a company that's going to benefit because of these kind of lockdowns and more people getting takeout or more people getting food delivery. How important is a restaurateur in New York City, depending on food delivery services like DoorDash or Grubhub and others like Uber Eats? You know, the fact is um, we are heavily dependent on that, um, mainly from a marketing level. Uh, The fact is because of their fees and the amount of business that is done between the merchant and um, the, the delivery service, we are, it's unable, we're unable to make money. Like I, I I believe our restaurant uh, makes uh, two cents or a cent on, on every dollar that we make through these delivery agents. And, you know, it helps us, you know, keeps the restaurant going and maintains marketing and puts, product going through it. However, that's not a sustainable way for us to make money. We, we won't be able to pay our rent solely based on that. We need people to come in. Um, the best way to support is are for um, guests to come in and order for themselves, take out without actually going through those means at all times. Obviously, different circumstances change, but um, it's, it's tough to make money through those services. And they're really the ones reaping the benefit. Now, Jordan, there, there's also been some chatter, some talk about New York City trying to impose some kind of a a work or kind of stay at home tax, if you will, for deliveries that are that are made to New York City residents, X dollars per delivery, something like that. How exactly will that play out for business owners who rely on those people who are staying at home to do that kind of transaction? Is it good or bad for the city? Um, I I would say that it's it's good. Like, you know, it's it's good for the city in that. Listen, um, the fact is safety is is paramount here. We all want to be safe. We all want to see our loved ones make it through this pandemic. And with the vaccine coming, that's just going to add another kind of level and layer and complexity that we as restaurateurs have to navigate. But the fact is anything where the restaurants are can operate while the customers are safe, you know, I'm here for. However, I just don't know if Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio have ha- have had all the help they can get from the federal level, you know, and it's just, this is, it's a tough time, but we as restaurateurs, we just, like I said, we need to work through it all and you need to be willing to adapt to it as well. I'm sure a lot of restaurateurs in not just New York city, but all across the country are looking towards Washington DC for any signs of those stimulus talks progressing. Jordan, thank you very much. Jordan Andino at Flip City in New York city. We appreciate it. And good luck to you. Still on deck for the show. Still on deck for the show. The much, much more on the rollout logistics for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. Brian Sullivan lays out how a nearly 200-year-old company is helping to get the treatment to frontline workers in one state. Much more on Worldwide Exchange coming up ahead. A historic day in this country as distribution of COVID-19 vaccines begin Dr. Carlos Del Rio of Emory University is standing by to lay out what to expect in the days ahead. Amid that vaccine rollout, stocks are looking to bounce back after suffering a losing week. And new details emerging about a months-long global hacking campaign hitting the U.S. government. Our own Eamon Javers has the overnight developments. It's Monday, December 14th, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC.
Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Here is how your money and investments are looking right now as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. You'll see gains implied at the opening bell by roughly 200 points for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, roughly 20 points for the S&P, and around 38 to 39 points for the NASDAQ overall. So a solid green day developing, at least for right now. We'll see if that sticks around into the opening bell. Now, all of this as stocks snap their multi-week winning streak on Friday. All three major indices finishing their week lower, with the S&P 500 closing down nearly 1%, as you can see there, the worst of the performers in the major three. Now to our continuing coverage of this morning's very big story and the rollout of Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine. Logistics have been a key question in this initiative, especially getting the treatment to smaller communities around the country. Brian Sullivan joins us now on the CNBC Newsline from Shreveport, Louisiana, with that part of this massive story. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Dom. I mean, listen, it does feel like a new day in America, right? I mean, Dow Futures up 200 points. You've got the vaccine that is on the way already today, arriving in many spots. And we came down to Louisiana because we want to tell the story about the rest of America, right? We talk about huge hospitals getting a direct shipment. They've got the ability to keep this stuff at negative 80 degrees Celsius. That's what it requires to stay stable for a long time. Ultra cold freezers. Well, what about some of these more rural areas? It is a totally different story. So not to get boring, but here's how the vaccine will be distributed. They're they're sort of jokingly calling them pizza boxes. They're more like small pallets. There are 975 doses in a pallet. Okay. And when you bring that dose in, You've got to use all of it. It stays stable for about six hours at room temperature. So here's the question. If you send this to New York or Chicago or just any major metro area, you will have no problem finding 975 frontline health care workers, elderly people that are in phase one to take the dose. What about in smaller rural areas? Well, you look at Louisiana. This is a major logistical challenge. They've broken it up into nine hospital regions, as we're showing you. They're going to coordinate with different hospitals. Some of them are in more rural areas. Here's how it works. Morris and Dixon, which is a 178-year-old, fifth-generation, family-run company here in Shreveport, they will get the vaccine delivered to them in those pallets, Dom. But then they've got to break them down into smaller units And we talked with Paul Dixon, Jr., fifth generation, VP of operations, obviously son of the the CEO. He explained to us the critical time and temperature work it's going to take to get it switched out. Listen. Once the truck delivers the vaccines, they go into these ultra cold freezers. You can see that negative 80 degrees Celsius. We're here now with Paul Dixon, Jr., VP of operations, fifth generation member of the family. Paul, once they come out of those freezers... Where do they go? So we'll be breaking them down in smaller quantities into these trays that hold up to 20 vials. We'll take these vials, place them in here with refrigeration blocks, pack this ice chest with this digital data logger. There'll be a probe inserted in the foam. They'll be right at the vials. We'll be monitoring the vials' temperature the entire time. This digital data logger will show the temperature every 10 seconds with the display on the outside so we can see it at all times. What that and then they go into the trucks and you distribute them throughout Louisiana. How much time do you have between taking them out of that freezer and getting them into that? Less than three minutes. That's it, three minutes. So precision is key. That's right. Temperature is key. Very critical. 
so dumb. You think about that less than three minutes. Otherwise, it could risk the, the vaccine because they, they've got to get them out to all these different rural areas that simply may not need 975 doses. All right, Brian Sullivan, thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. We'll, we'll look forward to your continued reports out in Shreveport, Louisiana today. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Brian. Now, for a closer look at what the rollout will look like, we are now joined by Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Executive Associate Dean of Emory University's School of Medicine. Uh, doctor, thank you very much for joining us this morning. You just heard Brian Sullivan's report. This is going to be a very, very major undertaking with a lot of nuance that will split the difference between success and failure for this vaccine. How exactly is this going to go down? And are we going to be worried that the vaccine may not get out as intended, given the logistics needs? Well, Dominique, as you heard, the logistics are very, very challenging. And they're going to be different for every place in the country. Having said that, I'm confident we will get it right. I'm confident that a lot of effort has been put into doing this. Granted, uh, there's going to be hiccups. There's going to be complications. There's going to be, you know, things that don't work. But I think as we're doing it, we're, we'll be learning what works and what doesn't. You know, this is a very challenging vaccine, as you as you heard. You have to keep it at minus 80. You have to, you know, comes in vials of almost a thousand doses that you have to use altogether. So a lot of challenges are happening. Many hospitals, for example, are going to be scheduling uh, providers to get vaccinated and they're going to almost have a, a understudy list, right? A, a second call list in case somebody doesn't show up. They may call you and say, hey, you are due tomorrow, but we're going to have you come today in order not to waste the vaccine. So a lot of challenges, but I am convinced we'll get it right. Uh, Doctor, I'm looking at the in my mind, we've seen so many graphics and so many kind of stories about the life cycle of this vaccine from production all the way to distribution and actually the shot going into my arm or somebody else's arm. What's the weakest link? What's the biggest risk factor during that kind of life cycle or supply chain for this virus and its vaccine, is it the transportation itself or is it the distribution to the hospitals? Is it the administration? What exactly is going to be the, the thing that we fear the most? I think what I fear the most are two things. Is number one, the cold chain. Keeping the cold chain is very hard. I mean, it's really very important to keep the cold chain and that's that's gonna be a challenge. You heard about how they're putting temperature sensors on the, on the containers, et cetera. That's a huge challenge. You don't have a lot of time in which the vaccine may inactivate if you don't keep the cold chain and you're moving it from different places. And number two is, is just, uh, you know, vaccine reluctance. Some people are still a little nervous about getting vaccinated. Some people are saying, you know, who goes first? What happens? Uh, do I want to go first? Do I, don't, do I want to wait until some of my colleagues have been vaccinated before I go? So I think it's going to take some time for people to, to truly be comfortable saying, I'm going to get vaccinated. So as much information as we can provide, as much trust as we can provide, the better it's going to be. I, I'm very glad you brought that up. I'm now curious. You're a doctor. You're a medical professional. In your mind, what's the bigger kind of unknown or risk? Is it the idea that we don't have enough of these vaccines to go around to everybody? Or is it that we do have enough and that people just don't feel inclined to take it? What's the bigger risk for America and the world right now? Well, it depends where you are. At the early stage, like right now, we just don't have enough vaccine. The first uh, you know, the people in the, the tier one that you mentioned about tier one are persons working in healthcare and people living or working in long term care facilities. There are about 30 million people like that in America. The first shipment of a dose is about 2.93 million doses. So that's only for about 10 percent of people. So we simply don't have enough and we have to initially, you know, prioritize people. Later on, we'll have more vaccines. We're going to have, you know, 
Moderna, we're going to have AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, Novavax. And as we have more vaccines, I think there's not going to be an issue of, of sufficient vaccine here in this country. There may be an issue in much of the world, and, and it's going to take some time to get vaccine to everybody, to the billions of people around the world. And at that point in time, I think the logistics and the hesitancy are going to be a challenge that we're going to have to overcome. Is there a possibility, Dr. Del Rio, before before we let you go, is there a possibility with all those names that you reeled off for people developing vaccines? Is there is there a fear that the the vaccinating public right now will get confused by all the vaccines out there? Do do you feel as though there's going to be any kind of confusion about whether or not somebody wants to take the Moderna one or the Pfizer BioNTech one or the hypothetical AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson or Novavax? What exactly does that look like down the line when the vaccines are all out there? I think down the line it's going to look, you know, they're all going to be about the same. They're all going to be have similar efficacies. It's going to depend on what governments around the world purchase and what contracts get established. The reality is we're going to need a lot of vaccines in order to supply the entire world. One company simply cannot do it. I think about it as I will think about, you know, brands of cars or brands of equipment that people are using, companies. I think at the end of the day, if the vaccines all have similar efficacy, it really doesn't matter what you get. You're going to be better off getting any of the vaccines than getting none of the vaccines. And just before we let you go, how important is it to get the vaccine? I think it's going to be critically important. I mean, this is the beginning of the end. We're starting today. I mean, I'm waking up this morning saying today begins the beginning of the end of this pandemic. And the sooner we can vaccinate the population around the world, the sooner this is going to be over. All right. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, Emory University, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And Pfizer CEO Albert Borla will have more on that vaccination rollout on Squawk Box, 8 a.m. Eastern time later on this morning, a must watch interview there. Now to that developing story out of Washington, D.C., and the revelation that hackers broke into federal agencies, including the Treasury Department, as part of a global cyber espionage campaign. Eamon Javers joins us now with the latest. Eamon, what else do we know about this breach and the context around it? Yeah, good morning, Don. We got a lot of new news overnight last night. But let me start with the Reuters story that came out yesterday. They broke this report late yesterday. And what they said was uh, that somebody has been hacking into both the Treasury Department uh, and also into Commerce's National Telecommunications and Information Administration, which handles Internet-related issues. The attack, Reuters reported, was so serious that it led to a National Security Council meeting at the White House on Saturday. The scope of the breach, they reported, was Unclear. The investigation by the FBI and others in the national security realm uh, is still in its early stages. But we got a report out last night uh, from FireEye, the cybersecurity company, Dom. And what they said uh, is that they discovered that this attack dates back to the spring of 2020. Uh, they said that the attackers, whoever they are, are, most likely a nation state, that is a government intelligence service somewhere around the world. They didn't name the government that they thought was responsible here. Uh, and they said that the government was able to access IT infrastructure management software that's widely used software uh, that a lot of different organizations use. And they said that they found this attack was worldwide. It hit private sector and public sector entities around the globe. They said it was individually tailored, very stealthy. They said the software actually got into these systems and then laid dormant for two weeks before roaming around the systems and gathering information. Right now, Dom, what it looks like is this was an information or intelligence gathering operation, not a disruptive attack necessarily. But there's a lot we still don't know here. And one more thing, uh, the Russian government last night denied responsibility for it, Dom. 
latest on a on that congressional push to reach a deal on virus aid for Americans. What can you tell us about where those talks stand? President Trump has already weighed in saying he doesn't really see as much incremental development there. Is that the case? Yeah, look, there's this bipartisan group of senators who've been working together behind the scenes to put together uh, a $908 billion package here. Uh, Unclear where that's going to go. We do expect that they're going to release the text of that today. And we also expect that they're going to do it in two parts, Don. Let me break it down for you. The first part is going to be the hard part. And that is uh, they're going to put about $160 billion in aid for state and local governments in there. That's something that the Democrats wanted. Uh, That's going to be a tricky ask because a lot of Republicans don't like that idea. They're also going to put in that package temporary liability shields uh, for businesses and nonprofits, uh, schools and hospitals to protect them from lawsuits related to COVID. That's something that a lot of Democrats don't want. So those are two controversial provisions. They're going to go alone in the part one phase of this. The other piece of it is a remaining $748 billion. That's for vaccine distribution, schools, unemployment insurance benefits, uh, and small businesses. So there's a lot of money there. That's the more popular piece of it. Not clear yet what the strategy is going to be, whether they're going to marry those two things together or try to pass them separately. And not clear yet where leadership stands on all this. This is just this gang of eight group that's doing this on their own. Uh, We'll see whether they can get some momentum today, Don. All right. Eamon Javers with the latest era out of Washington. Thank you very much. Coming up on the show, could a tough 2020 for commercial real estate carry over into 2021? We talked to one expert on what's ahead for that battered sector. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. All right, welcome back. What you're seeing there is a live shot of Times Square in New York City, Midtown Manhattan, just about 5.45 a.m. Eastern Time. There is a lot of commercial real estate, not just in New York City, but elsewhere being impacted by the virus pandemic. Now, many businesses are renting space. They were forced to shutter given the pandemic. For more on what's ahead, I am now joined by Calvin Schnorr, Senior Vice President for Research and Economic Analysis with NARI. Thank you very much, Calvin, for being here. New York City is just one. I'm familiar with it because I live so close to it. How bad has the commercial real estate market been in 2020, given the the virus pandemic? Well, obviously, this pandemic has hit every aspect of the economy, and real estate is no exception. And what's happened is a lot of the tenants that may have been completely shut down early in the spring were not getting a cash flow. Many of them were not able to make their rent payments. Maybe no were not able to pay for their lease. So that caused a lot of distress in this in the real estate space. It's really been concentrated in a couple sectors. It's been concentrated in retail real estate, in hotels, in travel, in those areas, the areas that have a high risk of exposure. Some of the other sectors are, are also feeling some difficulties, but not as severe. You know, the office market uh, is struggling with some of the longer-term implications of work from home. Uh, the, the apartment market is an interesting one. The downtown Areas are are seeing some move outs, but suburban areas, smaller cities are actually looking at an increase in demand. But I really want to stress that overall, uh, the, the real estate sector began the year on stronger ground than it had when we had previous downturns. Look at the office market. Office construction at the start of the year is about 2% of the existing stock. That's about half of what we had before the great financial crisis a decade ago. Uh, in, in, two, in the two, in 1980s, Construction was about 6%. So we have much fewer buildings coming on the market right now at a very weak time. That's going to prevent 
the, as much of an increase in vacancy rates as we would have seen. But we're, we're in for a tough slog in the next six months. So, so with that in mind, since the virus vaccines have come kind of to market here, it's a big day to day with the rollout from Pfizer BioNTech here in the U.S. We've seen a number of these beaten down sectors in the market recover decently well, travel, hospitality, that sort of thing. What can we expect to see out of commercial real estate? What are the parts of that CRE market that will bounce back the strongest in 2021 when the virus actually gets checked? We're going to see those sectors that were most impacted. You know, the, the hotels, the travel, those are some areas that were really shut down because people were not traveling. Hotels were largely vacant. Many of them were shuttered. They're opening up. They're seeing more revenue per room. They're seeing more travelers coming through. Those are the sectors that really could see some improvement later this year. Retail, you're also going to see improvement. Um, I would want to emphasize that in terms of 2021, it's going to be backloaded, backend loaded. The next six months, we're not likely to see a whole lot of improvement while people are getting the vaccine. It's going to take some time before we see improvement in the real estate market. But the important news about the vaccines is it gave us a firmer end date for when this crisis is going to cause a real problem. We've got a lot more confidence now that by the middle of the year into the late part of the year, REITs and commercial real estate should be seeing a whole lot more income coming in, should be seeing a stronger recovery later this year and then especially into the next or later in 2021, especially into 2022. Where is the relative strength, Calvin, in the real estate market right now? You showed a chart there with vacancy rates. I want to key in on the warehouse industrial side of things and, and what's happening with kind of the work from home, stay at home trade during the virus pandemic. Is it true now that these warehouse type operations will have a continued bright future given this new shift towards working from home and warehouse retail fulfillment? The, the warehouse, these are the people that are delivering the packages. These are the businesses that are delivering the packages, and they need to store them for a very short period as they go for the final mile. And if you're not my neighborhood, most places across the country, you look around and what you see are delivery trucks, whether it's Amazon, whether it's FedEx, something else. You're seeing a very strong business in the logistics part of the industrial space. Uh, REITs are very prominent in that space, and they're, they're, they're really on fire. This part of the REIT sector is a relatively new part of commercial real estate. Industrial has always been a mainstay in commercial real estate. But the logistics space, you know, delivering things uh, to, to people who are buying them on the Internet has really been powering the growth, has been very strong this year, should be even stronger through the first half of next year. This is a strong part of the market. All right. Calvin Stewart, Nairi, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. On deck for the show, stock set for the gains there that you're seeing amid the vaccine rollout in the U.S. Federated Hermes, Hermes's Phil Orlando is standing by with the moves that you need to make in this historic week with everything going on with the virus rollout. Worldwide Exchange is back in a moment. All right. Welcome back. Taking a look at futures this morning. We are seeing the Dow implied higher by roughly 200 some points here. The S&P higher by about 21 and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 40 some at this point. Now, this is on a critical day for this country as health officials prepare to bring to bring administ- begin administering Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine all across the country. For more on this and the trading day ahead, I'm joined by Phil Orlando, Federated Hermes, chief equity market strategist, Phil it's great to have you here. Let's talk about whether this positivity is justified. 
It's absolutely justified. The the uh, creation of the vaccine and the distribution that we're looking at that's going to roll out over the course of the next year is is very positive. The experts are telling us that we're going to vaccinate at a pace of about 50 million Americans a month. Look, that's aggressive. Let, let's cut that in half. Even at 25 million people a month, we'll have half the country vaccinated by the middle of next year, which means that we're going to approach critical mass and, and allow us to begin to normalize economic activity in terms of restaurants and traveling and hotels in the back half of the year. So this is enormously positive as we look out over the longer term. Doesn't a market that's already higher than it was pre-virus pandemic imply that investors and perhaps the public overall are expecting that things are going to be better in 2021 and beyond? I only ask because it seems like the market's gone very quickly to the upside here. How much has already been priced in? Buy the rumor, sell the news. Uh, we're up 69% since the bottom of the market in March. We're up 15% since the end of October. So there's a lot of good news priced in. To take your argument here, there are several hurdles you've got to look at right now. We're in the midst of a third wave surge in infections and mortalities. This week, you've got the deadline on the $900 billion uh, fiscal stimulus discussion and the continuing resolution in Washington. You've got Brexit at the end of the year. You've got the January runoffs on January 5th for the two Georgia Senate seats. So there's a lot of chop here over the next three weeks. If we can look past that valley and, and uh, manage these chops, the longer term picture looks great. But that doesn't mean we can't see a little profit taking here over the next couple of weeks. This is always the time of year pre-pandemic that we talk about things like seasonality in the latter part of the year, Santa Claus rallies. What, we, what, we, what should we be doing kind of going into the forward in, into 2021? Let's put the virus pandemic market effect aside here. How much of the fundamental story of the markets is still intact, given what we're seeing with the retail shopping season, the, the American consumer and, and the economic recovery that we expect to continue in 2021? Dom, we think the consumer is actually quite strong. And we're expecting that Christmas this year, defined as October through January, is going to be up somewhere between four to five percent. Now, Christmas last year uh, over that same four month period is up four point two percent. So we're looking at you know, a Christmas that's as good or maybe even better. And Christmas uh, tree sales, as you probably have heard, are off the charts. Christmas trees are sold out. So I think we're going to have a pretty good Christmas, largely driven by online sales. So the consumer's in pretty good shape. Confidence is pretty good. The, the labor market has come back. Manufacturing is strong. I think the economic picture is a bright one. We do not subscribe to the double-dip recession that some of our competitors are talking about. We think the U.S. economy is in pretty good shape. All right. Now, before we let you go here, just about 30 seconds left. What, what are your favorite parts of the market right now to get into for 2021? We neutralized our overweight in domestic large cap growth and technology last August. We felt that those stocks were ahead of themselves. The areas we'd focus on here, domestic large cap value, small cap and international. Uh, that's where the value is. There's a huge valuation gap uh, that those sectors have started to close since Labor Day. We think that trade continues through calendar 21. 
All right, small caps and some of those value sectors for sure. Big ones to watch. Phil Orlando, Federated Hermes, thank you very much. Great to have, a, great to have you Dom, with us. thank you. All right. Merry well, Christmas to you, Dom. And Merry Christmas to you and yours as well. Thank you very much. Thank well, you. that does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Dow Futures pointing to a 200-point gain right out of the opening bell. Squawk Box picks up the coverage coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.